The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we have the latest from Minneapolis, where jury selection for the murder trial of Derek Chauvin is scheduled to begin next week. Julie Janae is on the ground and has a full report. Then we'll be joined by Court TV's Grace Wong, who will tell us what it took to get cameras in the courtroom for this historic trial. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. And uh, get ready, folks. You may not know this, or you may know this, but the George Floyd trial is happening. It is happening. March 8th, this trial is set to begin. Believe it or not. I mean, in nine months, we went from um, a video that transformed our criminal justice system in a matter of months. Uh, Nine months later now, the trial that could further transform our system of justice, depending upon what happens inside that courtroom. And here at Court TV and on the Court TV podcast, we'll be going in depth. Of course, we'll have gavel to gavel coverage on the air. But then each week on the podcast, we'll take you down to another layer of depth and understanding for a story, a case, and a trial that is the most important and significant one that I've covered in my entire career. So uh, let's get at it. Uh, Julie Janae, Court TV legal correspondent, joins us on the podcast. She's in Minneapolis where all of this is happening. Julia, uh, thank you so much. Begin here. Paint the picture. In, in Minneapolis, as we are on the eve of this trial beginning, what's happening there? Vinny, thanks for having me on. We are here in downtown Minneapolis. And, you know, covering trials, it's, it's like something I've never seen when it comes to what the courthouse looks like. We've been at this courthouse multiple times covering pretrial, interviewing people. So we've been on the ground between May 25th, 2020 and now. But what it looks like now is completely different. This courthouse is completely surrounded by fencing, by concrete barricades, by wire, multiple layers. And we're talking eight feet plus as far as the height. So you get the sense when you are in the area of the courthouse, and it's a huge government center and city hall, that something big is about to happen and that this city is bracing for what is coming, what may come. You know, this is all about preparations. But downtown Minneapolis as well just looks different than it has. And that's not just because of the trial. It's also because of COVID, because of the weather. Uh, They have a lot of restrictions. So comparatively from when I've been in this city many years ago for conferences, for other things, it, it just has a very eerie, quiet Uh, almost ghost town feel if you compare it to how bustling downtown Minneapolis is. And the talk right now for people who are involved in this trial is what's going to happen with the Court of Appeals, because there is still litigation that is going on right on the heels of this trial starting next week. So there's a lot of preparation in the air. There's a, a lot of people who know who are in the downtown area. They just see how different their downtown looks right now. You know, the way you describe that, to me, is it the quiet before the storm, right? You're, it's eerily quiet. 
and you see the preparations and you understand that this huge trial is about to happen, um, yet there's no one there right now. But Court TV is there, obviously, because our cameras, our microphones inside the courtroom bringing the gavel-to-gavel coverage. Um, Another question I have for you is where George Floyd died. Now it's George Floyd Square. Where is that in relation to this courthouse? This is about 15 minutes away by car. Uh, This is Chicago Avenue, and it is an area now that, and it's been this way for many, many months. This hasn't changed for George Floyd Square. It is a section that has just been sectioned off, barricaded off by the people in the community, and it's essentially hollowed ground. When you walk onto that part of Minneapolis, you know that something happened here. There are still uh, flowers, tents, murals, uh, pictures of Floyd. There are There's graffiti that reminds you of what happened over the summer, the protests, the demonstrations. There wasn't the same destruction in this area that was felt by different parts of Minneapolis, including the area where the Minneapolis police precinct, the third precinct was burned down. But this area has just been treated like a shrine to George Floyd. You can't look anywhere and not see something that his death, the movement that followed has touched. And people are quiet there on purpose because they respect what happened there. I'm wondering during the course of this trial, because the way you describe downtown being barricaded And we know because of COVID that there's limited access to the courthouse. I wonder if when people are gathering and and whether they're having their voices heard one way or the other, whether they're going to be at the courthouse or if they'll be at George Floyd Square. Because if you're at the courthouse, I mean, how close can you actually get to the courthouse at this point? Um, because we've seen when there's protests and and people are demonstrating during the course of a trial, for the most part, you get like right next to the courthouse. What is that situation going to be like? How far away would people be? And what's, what's, what is your gut telling you about whether or not the focal point of the community during this trial will be outside the courthouse or where George Floyd died? That's a really great question. And Because of the distance away from the courthouse that George Floyd Square is, I don't know that the focus is going to be there. Certainly, people who come into town will be directed, recommended to go and see that area. I tell people who uh, come to Minneapolis that it's something you want to witness uh, in that area just because of the magnitude of how it's been preserved and how people still flock to that area. But I think people still want to make sure that justice is served and they're going to feel like it's this courthouse uh, is where that justice can be served. It's a really tall building. I mean, this trial is going to be on the 18th floor. This is a massive building. So even if you're not able to get up close to it, you can still feel like you are in the shadow of this building, no matter what street you're on. So they are going to be closing roads. We know there are demonstrations that are planned for this area, for downtown Minneapolis, as close as they can get to the government center. Um, So in answer to your question, I think there will still be that presence in the downtown area, regardless of what the precautions are. What a scene. I mean, unlike any trial that I've ever covered. I mean, I've covered big trials, but just big in a different sense. 
And, and I think we all understand what we're talking about here because we all experience the same thing. Uh, you know, a video goes viral. It is seen around the world and everyone has this reaction to it. Then it manifests itself into um, action and protest and demonstration. And um, it is, is taking it to another level. And to have this trial take place within nine months when everything is still so raw is so unusual. And I don't know how it's going to play out. Let's get back to the law now, Julia. You mentioned there are still appellate arguments taking place. And this is all about what the charges in the case will be. And, and, and you know, that's the thing that Court TV is good at, is, is breaking down what the charges are, what has to be proven, and, and, and what the elements are, and, and how they differ. So let's, let's walk through that as people prepare for this trial the charges that the officer, the single officer who will be on trial at the first case, which is Derek Chauvin, the one with his knee on George Floyd's neck, what are the current charges? And then what is the controversy in the appellate court? So the current charge against Derek Chauvin charges second degree unintentional murder and second degree manslaughter. Now at the onset of this, there was a third degree murder charge against Derek Chauvin. That was actually the first charge that prosecutors brought against him. And then they added the second degree murder charge several days later. The third degree murder charge was dropped by the judge, dismissed because of a lack of probable cause. The judge did not feel that the Minnesota statute, the way it's written, supported this being a third degree murder. So the prosecutors were left with second degree murder and second degree manslaughter. In the last few months, things have changed. The Court of Appeals upheld a conviction of third-degree murder of a former Minneapolis police officer, Mohammed Noor. He was the officer who was inside his squad car, shot out the window, killing Justine Damon. She was an Australian native, and she was unarmed, shot in a dark alley. That officer was convicted of third-degree murder here in Minneapolis, and on appeal, it's been upheld by the Court of Appeals. So the prosecutors in Chauvin believe that that shows that you can have a third-degree murder charge in a case where there was only one victim and the incident was only dangerous to one victim. So they have asked the court, the lower court that this case is in, to reinstate the third-degree murder charge. Judge Peter Cahill, who's presiding over this case, said no, it doesn't apply, and that is not precedent because it can still go to the Minnesota Supreme Court. It has now been appealed, and the appellate judges have heard the oral arguments on whether or not their decision is binding, whether or not Judge Peter Cahill has to follow their ruling. And right now, we're still waiting on what they are going to say in this case. Unbelievable. On the eve of the biggest trial, uh, and again, I, I can't emphasize how big this case is uh, on so many different levels, and we still don't know all the charges as the lawyers litigated. And, and there's a big difference, right? Manslaughter is up to 10 years. Second-degree murder, which he's facing, up to 40 years. But in the middle is that third degree, which is up to 25 years. And for prosecutors, I see it as a safety net. And what's unusual here, Julia, is in a lot of cases that I cover, it's usually the defendants who want those lesser charges as an option for the jury. Because, hey, listen, you know, maybe they can find him. They're not going to let him just walk, so maybe something less. Whereas here it's prosecutors who want the lesser 
charges included as an option for this jury. Yeah, you call it a safety net. I call it a safer bet. They want to make sure that this jury has a lot of options. And knowing that Muhammad Noor, the case I just talked about, that that jury was able to come back with third degree murder, that jury had second degree murder on the table as well. They rejected it and only came back with third degree murder for that former Minneapolis police officer. So there's almost a precedent set there that a Minneapolis Hennepin County jury feels that an officer uh, could be guilty of a third degree murder. The difference is you don't have to prove intent. You just have to show that the person was acting recklessly, had a depraved heart, and that they weren't being careful with human life with the actions that they took. Second degree murder, you have to prove that they were acting intentionally and were trying to cause bodily harm or an assault on this person. So I think these prosecutors likely feel that third degree murder is going to be safer for them when it comes to this jury. Yeah, it's always difficult to convict a police officer who was going to work and doing a job of intentionally committing a crime. In most of the cases that I've covered through the years, it always comes down to either some level of depravity where they just don't care that they, they, they cause the harm that they're causing or they are extremely reckless, criminally negligent in, in doing their jobs. But it's always a challenge to convince a jury that a police officer went to work and then intended to commit a crime. And in this case, it would be in front of a crowd of people who were video or recording them. So um, I think it's a smart call by prosecutors to have it in there. Uh, we'll see what the appellate court does. Julie Janae, very busy on the ground in Minneapolis. Uh, thank you so much. We'll be speaking throughout this trial. We're going to bug you throughout, Julia. Thanks, Vinny. See you later. All right. Now, this is the first time Court TV has ever covered a case in Minnesota. Why is that? Do, do we not like Minnesota? No, no. Minnesota generally does not permit cameras and microphones inside the courtroom. But this case, again, is unlike any other case. But there's a reason why we're in this courtroom. And when we come back, I will speak with my friend and colleague who I say personally made this happen. That is next. Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. So Court TV has never, ever, 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 ever covered a case with cameras inside the courtroom in Minnesota. And it's not because we didn't want to. It's because we've never been granted permission to have our cameras in the courtroom. And what you have to understand is this is a decision that is made state by state, judge by judge. So there's different rules in different states, and there's judges who interpret the rules differently in different states. So it's, not, it's never automatic that we can just bring cameras and microphones inside a courtroom. But this trial, as we've been saying, the, the, the George Floyd murder trial, how could this not be on court TV is, is really the question. And, and it's going to be on court TV. But it's no accident that we, we are going to be broadcasting this. Uh, you can thank... Court TV producer Grace Wong, who joins us right now. Uh, we've worked together for many, many years. I won't say how many, uh, 
But Grace, uh, thank you for joining us. You are as well, of course, on the ground in, in Minneapolis. How about approaching this, the fact that the biggest case in the nation was happening in Minnesota? What was was your reaction the same as mine? Like, oh, I can't believe it's Minnesota. We're 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 never we're never going to get to see this trial. Yes, Vinny. My my instincts right away was we really need to watch this trial. The country needs to watch this trial, and in fact, the world is interested in seeing this trial. But I knew from the very start it was going to be an uphill battle. I mean, the law in this state, as far as access is concerned, is against us. Every case, they, they, first of all, the precedent was against us. The state has never had cameras in a criminal trial. And in order to get cameras, theoretically, uh, both sides have to agree. And in this case, the prosecution opposed cameras. The defendants did not, but the prosecution did. And this is very unusual, Vinny. In my experience and many trials that I've covered, prosecutors don't normally object to cameras. They either take no position or they defer to the judge. And um, so we were actually, I was really surprised when the order came down permitting cameras, but it was a bit of a road to get there. Um, it was intense um, conversation. When did that, when did it, when did, when did that conversation start? Oh gosh, probably started uh, certainly last year. I can't remember the first meeting that we had, but it was a meeting that we had with the chief judge. And at that point, there was sort of a, an initiation with the idea of introducing cameras into this trial. And of course, I was, uh, it was an uphill battle because they had had no experience. And most of the time, you know, if you had no experience, you don't start with the biggest trial of the decade or certainly the biggest trial of the year. Um, but I think we were very fortunate that the lead judge, the, the chief judge of this county, um, recognized the value of transparency and the need for people to, or, and the interest. Uh, he knew from the very start that there would be a lot of interest in this trial. So he was open to discussing. And I think um, Court TV is really experienced at this. In fact, when um, the Justice Department wanted to carry um, Saddam Hussein's trial live to a global audience, they consulted Court TV. So we have a uh, recognition, people recognize us as the experts in this field. And I think that's why he was open to discussing it, at least with us. And that's how it started. So what are the, what are the concerns, right? I, I mean, every judge or, or courthouse may have different concerns about it. What were the concerns here about allowing the the community of Minneapolis, Minnesota, the United States, uh, to see what was going to happen inside that courtroom? Well, the biggest concern, Vinny, is space. This is a courtroom that is the biggest courtroom in the, in the whole government center, but it's not a big courtroom. And it's very limited in space because of COVID um, restrictions. So they could not have a team of media people in here and you know a lot of equipment so we introduced the idea of having robotic cameras which we use now routinely where we can have cameras in the courtroom that can be operated remotely so that was one concern that they had that we were able to address pretty pretty handily it seems to me though that that's 
on the one hand, it would be a concern, but on the other hand, it would be a solution, right? Because obviously, everyone wants to know what's happening inside that courtroom. People want to see our system of justice at work and understand it. So every member of the media, if you didn't have cameras, would be applying to be inside the courtroom, but there's no place for them. So the only solution to allow this case to be seen by the media and by the public is to have cameras inside and microphones. That's the only way it was going to happen. Well, you would, I would agree with that statement, but when you deal with the courts, you know, that's not always the solution that they view as, as a solution, right? I mean, one of the solutions could have been that, you know, the closed circuit television, so you can have as many media as you can, but you're watching it through, you know, some horrible surveillance camera with you can't hear and you can't see that well, and you're not going to be able to, um, I mean, we're not going to be able to see the jurors in this, but you're certainly not going to be able to see the defendant very well. You're not going to be able to, 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 to see the lawyers. Or sometimes in some cases, like in, the, in some of the cases I've covered in federal court, where you can barely hear what is going on in the courtroom. So that could have been a, that could have been a proposed solution, but that wasn't on the table, at least. I mean, it might have been considered, but we offered a better solution to address those concerns and to address what is going to be you know, an international audience for this trial. And it's all, to me, it's about trust in our system. I mean, ultimately, we cover our system of justice, right? And, and the reason I love what we do at Court TV is because everyone ignores our courtrooms across the country, right? Uh, all the other television networks that are so focused on politics, 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 the other two branches of government, they completely ignore the judicial branch. And, and for us to be able to have that opportunity, because... This is something that touches people's lives, whether it's whether you, you get that notice to serve as a juror or whether um, you've been impacted as a victim of a crime or you're involved in a civil suit, whatever it is. Um, and to have it completely like shuttered away where America doesn't see it, like the only people that see it are the people who have time during the day to walk down to their courthouse. To me, that's crazy. So this is an opportunity and I think an important one for America to see the way the system works or doesn't work in, in, in the way they see it, but especially in this case, because everyone's already seen the video. But what does that mean and how does that translate? If you, if you see that video and then there's a, a verdict that is just announced, how does anyone trust the system? Was, was, that, was, was that an argument or, or a uh, part of the reasoning for the, for the judge and, the, and the, the chief and the judge in Minneapolis to allow these cameras for, for more trust in the system in a case that everyone is already invested in? You know, it, it's obviously a concern, but it wasn't a, a voiced concern. I mean, there was an interest in opening up the trial so that more people could see it and that it would respect the rights of the public to be able to see this trial. Um, but there was, their concern was, okay, if this is something that we want to do, how can we do it and still respect the rules of the court? So I felt it was my job to make sure that they understood that they could still carry on a fair trial without any interference from the media or outside influences in a way that would make them uncomfortable. I mean, obviously having cameras in the courtroom introduces an element that they're not necessarily used to 
But we were very fortunate in the sense that the presiding judge in this case, Judge Cahill, is really tech savvy. I mean, he understood what we were trying to do and recognized that remote cameras was a good solution to uh, providing a, a public uh, public access to the trial and not interfering with the movements of anybody else. I mean, we're, so, we're very discreet. In fact, yesterday when we were setting up the cameras, he, he wanted to hear how, um, what level of noise the cameras would make when it panned and zoomed and he couldn't hear them. So he was quite impressed that they would be that discreet and would not interfere with any activity in the courtroom. And certainly above all else, preserve the privacy of these jurors, which is his, which is a concern, which is a paramount concern for these judges. Which is standard operating procedure at Court TV. You don't, you don't see the jurors. You, we don't reveal who they are. You don't know who they are. They just uh, give us a verdict at the end of the case. And if they want to speak afterwards, they speak afterwards. So um, can you describe for folks what they're going to be seeing and, 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 and how the, the courtroom is set up and, and what it takes to prepare for this trial, technically? It takes many hours of planning and uh, preparation. But yesterday when we started, uh, again, we, we have uh, benefited from a gracious and uh, very strong collaborative effort on the part of county officials, giving us access to the courtroom. Now, remember, um, this courtroom has really been buttoned up in preparation for this trial. I mean, talk about security outside, which looks like a fortress. Inside, there are several levels of security just to get into the courtroom of this trial. To get into the building, you have to go through security and your name has to be on a list. So you're, you have to be approved before you can even enter the building. Once you're in the building, there is a level of security that you go through on the bottom floor. And then another level of security to get up to the 18th floor where the trial is going to be. So there are more steps to have to go through. So that requires preparation. And so um, we're in, in terms of setting up, we had planned uh, several weeks ago or actually months ago where we wanted our cameras to be so that we can capture as much of the action in the courtroom as we could. Uh, and again, being able to do so without violating the golden rule of uh, uh, the privacy of the jurors. So in working with the judge and county officials, we agreed on what, where we wanted our cameras placed so that we can have a view of obviously the defendant, the lawyers doing the questioning, the judge making the decisions. Um, so those cameras are in place uh, and they're hidden away. You won't, you, you know, uh, you might be able to see the camera that's uh, sitting in front of the judge's bench because that is the camera that's pointed towards the questioner. And the judge is going to um, have the lawyers go up to the podium in order to address the witness so that we can hear um, and, and be able to see him. Uh, the other the other issue that um, we came across was the there will be video during the voir dire process, and that is when uh, prospective jurors are being interviewed. This is probably uh, the most important part of the trial because you're going to understand what these what pre 
conceptions or, or impressions that the jurors that might sit on this panel have about this case. So that questioning will be available, will be heard by the public, and we'll be able to see the lawyers doing the questioning. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Grace Wong, a Court TV producer, has done something that I never thought could be done, which is convince a jurisdiction that has never allowed cameras to allow cameras. And it, it, and it's important, I think, for all of us. So I think everyone should send Grace Wong, producer, Court TV, a thank you note um, that you're able to actually uh, see what transpires during the course of this incredibly big, big trial, which starts on March 8th. Grace, I know you're very busy on the ground there. I know you got to plug in some wires, so I will uh, let you go and get the, the courtroom all set up for us. Okay, so can I just give a shout-out to the Hennepin County folks that have been helping us through this? The, the officials here have been very kind and very collaborative with us. They've done some of the wiring for us in the courtroom to make it easy and to make our cameras work well, and uh, they're providing a lot of assistance in this, so this would not have been possible without their help. Awesome. So Grace Wong also convinces them to do our job for us by doing the wiring. Amazing. Well played, Grace Wong. Well played. Uh, I appreciate it. And I know uh, the folks who will be watching appreciate all that hard work. All right. When we come back, as we wrap up our, our preview of the George Floyd case, I'm going to tell you why this is a case prosecutors must, must win. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about the pressure that is on prosecutors in the George Floyd murder trial. This is pressure unlike any team of prosecutors have ever faced. And it's not just because the world will be watching. It's, it's not just why. It's because they have in their hands the most powerful piece of evidence I have ever come across in my entire career. And it may be the most powerful piece of evidence ever in any criminal trial anywhere. OK, and 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 that reason is it's a videotape of George Floyd and we've all seen it of George Floyd dying and it transformed our nation. And that's a piece of evidence that prosecutors have in this case. OK. That puts such incredible pressure on. We've all seen the video. We've all reacted to the video. But I know and the prosecutors know, and the defense attorneys know, that once you get inside a courtroom, things change inside those four walls. Sometimes the, the big picture is, is blurred somehow, and there's such a hyper-focus on issues that sometimes that incredible piece of evidence that you have, that, yeah, just watch the video, use your common sense, come to a conclusion that that's not right, that's criminal, doesn't translate into a verdict. It doesn't happen sometimes. And prosecutors have acknowledged this from the beginning, saying this is a tough case. And I agree with them. It's a tough case. But it's a case that they must win. You cannot have 12 people 
and I'm talking about the jury, come into that courtroom, watch that video, and listen to whatever other evidence there is, including experts and eyewitnesses, and at the end of the day say, no crime was committed. They can't have that. I mean, they can't. And I'm not saying that I've come to a conclusion on this one because I'm waiting to hear the evidence myself firsthand. What I'm saying is, and if you hear hammering in the background, folks, we're having some work done in the house here. Uh, I apologize. That's not my wife telling me to shut up down here. No, that's they're doing some work. You have this, this video. I mean, how can you have that piece of evidence and then walk out at the end of this of uh, the end of the case empty-handed? And I don't know, you know, you don't know what's going to happen during the course of the trial. I know there are issues with causation of death. I know there's problems with the toxicology and the autopsy and the medical examiner and the police training manual. All these things, incredible arguments for the defense and incredible obstacles for the prosecution here. But at the end of the day, you've you've been given this this nine-minute video that anyone who watches it just says, oh, are you kidding me? And, and remember, and you have to go back in time now, right? A lot has transpired in the last nine months. But if you go back in time when the video is first released, every, I would say almost everyone. You, never, you can never say everyone. But every guest I had on my show, whether it was a criminal defense attorney, a police officer, or just a regular old lawyer or judge, every guest I had on my show acknowledged that that's not right. And that is a crime. And that was everyone's opinion of it. Then more facts came out, and, and things may have, may have changed in some people's eyes, but it all was a reaction to the video. And they're not just going to have one video. They've got the body cams from all the officers who were there that day. I don't know how many times this jury is going to watch it from how many vantage points and see and hear what happened to George Floyd. To me, the, the one that really um, impacts me the most is the body cam of Tutau. Tutau is the officer who's in charge of crowd control. So he's the one keeping the, the bystanders, the civilians, away from George Floyd. Right. And on his body cam, you can see and hear the reaction of the people who are watching this in real time, in person. And when you I don't have to even see George Floyd just watching them and hearing them and, and, and how they are describing what is happening and how they are reacting to what is happening is so incredibly powerful. And they're going to have those folks inside the courtroom to testify. But seeing them in the moment as it's happening, wow. And I think that's why we all reacted the way we did. We saw what happened to George Floyd. We saw the reaction. We hear what people are saying, yet it doesn't stop. It just continues. So that's why, in this case, prosecutors need to win. Now, what is a win, right? He's charged with second-degree murder up to 40 years. He's charged with manslaughter up to 10 years. He may eventually be charged also with third-degree up to 25 years. 
to me, in this case, because it is a police officer, okay, a win for prosecutors is, is a conviction of anything. And I say that because police officers are the most difficult people to convict in a criminal trial. And it's not because we favor police officers. It's because of the circumstances of, all, of almost every case I've covered involving police officers, which is a police officer wakes up in the morning and goes to work. And during the course of doing their job, something bad happens. And most of the time, it's not intentional. And what I mean is the legal definition of intentional, like the, the mens rea, the mindset of the officer isn't, I am going to commit a crime and I am going to murder someone today. It's no, I'm going to do my job. They may do their job wrong. They may um, perhaps get angry. But at no point did they wake up in the morning and set out to commit a crime or to take a life. Whereas other murder cases that I've covered, that's exactly what the defendants have done. They've planned and plotted how to kill someone. And that planning may be over the course of days, weeks, months, or it could be over the course of, of a few hours, whatever it is. Generally speaking, in most murder trials I cover, the criminal defendant has, has planned this thing, has thought about it, has had time to reflect on it. Whereas with police officers, they are just going to work and doing their jobs. And then something really bad happens. And then we've got to figure out, well, well, what, what was going on in his or her mind at the moment that this life was taken? And that's what the trial ends up being about is the state of mind of the police officer. And it's difficult for uh, a jury many times to believe that a, a police officer is acting intentionally. They may be acting recklessly. They may be acting with uh, a depraved mind where they're doing something so inherently dangerous that they're just doing it without caring about what happens, but not intending to kill someone. And that's why these cases are tough. So from my perspective, I know many members of the public won't look at this as a victory if it's a manslaughter conviction. But as a former prosecutor and someone who has covered Many, 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 many trials involving police officers. Prosecutors must win. And, and a win in this case is a jury coming back and finding Derek Chauvin guilty of something. The defense may claim victory if it's manslaughter. The public may say this is an outrage, some members of the public. But at the end of the day, that's a victory. And the reason I say they must win is because their biggest piece of evidence has impacted the world. And you need to make it impact 12 people. All right, folks. We are in it from start to finish. Gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of the George Floyd murder trial on Court TV. You can watch it on the air. We are a broadcast station. You can pick up our signal if you have a digital antenna. And if you have the digital antenna, you can't find us, make sure you rescan it today so you can find us. Uh, we will bring you um, every moment, every piece of testimony, every piece of evidence. And of course, here on the podcast each week, we'll take a deep dive, give you some of the insight and some of the things that you may not be seeing uh, on camera. 
and, and give you the analysis so you can understand exactly what is happening and why it's happening. All right, we will speak again next week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.